The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. From our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Hi, this is Welcome to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a national democratic strategist, a columnist for The Messenger in Washington, DC, and a political analyst for news radio station KNX in Los Angeles. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. Mondays on Deadline DC, I talk to the people and players behind the politics and policies that drive our great nation forward. Uh, With us today, as always, is our intrepid executive producer, uh, Mark Grimaldi. Uh, who makes sure the show stays online and runs on time. Uh, We have two guests with us today, as is our custom. In the first half hour, Mika Sola, who is congressional reporter for Punchbowl News, joins us to discuss the threat of a government shutdown. Then in the second half hour, Adam Connor, vice president of technology policy, for the Center for American Progress, uh, discusses uh, net neutrality, artificial intelligence, and and uh, proposals to rein in big tech. But before we get to our first guest, we'll play this clip. This is uh, Congressman Brendan Boyle uh, from Pennsylvania, uh, who discusses uh, Speaker of the House Mike Johnson's latted uh, budget budget proposal. Well, I was uh, heartened that Moody's didn't lower our credit rating, but let's not forget there are three credit agencies. Two of the three already have. One did it in 2011 because of the Republican brinksmanship then as it related to the debt ceiling. And then the other uh, ratings agency, Fitch's, did it over the summer, again, because of Republican uh, brinksmanship when it comes to the debt ceiling. So The reality is that uh, these Republican antics that are so extreme as they relate to the debt ceiling or government funding, they are having a real cost to the American people and to our economy. So it's not just insider baseball, Washington, D.C. games. This is hurting our country and hurting the American people. One more question for you, Congressman, because whenever I all last week when I was reading about this two-tiered plan or laddered plan where some agencies um, have their their funding ended and others have their funding continued. It made me think of the argument Republicans were making in the run-up to the debt ceiling crisis, which was, oh, don't worry, we can prioritize payments, i.e. pay Social Security, but don't pay uh, uh, other bills. And the credit rating agencies and, and, and the financial folks were saying, uh, that's still a default. Why shouldn't I, why shouldn't I look at this laddered CR situation in the same way? Yeah, you are exactly right with that analogy. Uh, I had said that 
debt prioritization was really debt default by a different name. Likewise, uh, a laddered CR of keeping some agencies open but not others, well, that's simply a government shutdown by a different name. It simply won't work. And I'm glad that both Democratic and Republican members are publicly coming out saying this will not fly. That was uh, Congressman Brendan Boyle uh, from Pennsylvania, Democratic Congressman from Pennsylvania, uh, on MSNBC talking about the threat of government shutdown. Our guest in this half hour is Mika Solner, who uh, is a congressional reporter for Punchbowl News. Mika, welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Thanks for having me on, Brad. Uh, and thank you. I imagine this week's a pretty busy week with you, uh, with the uh, funds and fun and games in the House of Representatives. Uh, first of all, uh, there is a government shutdown that could happen on Friday. Uh, where are we on that? Are we making any progress to making sure that doesn't happen? Yeah, well, we're going to see how this uh, CR plays out, um, you know, that Speaker Johnson has proposed. We've already seen a lot of opposition, however, uh, you know, come forward on the CR, particularly from the right flank. Uh, you know, some of the Freedom Caucus members have said that they're not supportive of this, especially given the fact that it is a basically a clean CR that's just split up into two different segments, um, breaking up that timeline, basically giving Republicans more time and more ample room to actually pass some appropriations bills um, as they keep the government open. Um, that said, uh, Speaker Johnson will need Democrats to vote for this in order to pass it. So that's already going to be, um, you know, challenging for in the position that he is. But so we will see what happens here um, right now. Now, uh, why did the Speaker Mike Johnson propose this laddered approach? Yeah, so this was very much an attempt to appease um, the right flank of his conference in order to, you know, say that this isn't necessarily, uh, you know, the full year funding of government just right there. Uh, but he breaks it down and he, this was a way to just kind of approach that. And this was an idea that was first floated by Congressman Andy Harris of Maryland, who's also a member of the House Freedom Caucus. So really, the, he, he kind of took that and then made it his own. Um, so it was very much an attempt to kind of give conservatives... Um, a little bit more uh, ample room and kind of satisfy, you know, what they want. But of course, many of them have come out and said that they they are not going to vote for this on the floor. Uh, well, uh, in that case, uh, what can the speaker do uh, or can he do anything to avoid a shutdown on Friday if he doesn't have the votes in his own caucus? Yeah, he's going to have to work with Democrats on some level for them to support the CR um, in the state that it's in, um, you know, without spending cuts. I think a lot of the Republicans have made it clear that they will not be supporting him um, on this measure that's being put forward. And as well as, you know, there are, are other members, Democrats and Republicans alike, that said they don't want to go forward with it without any Ukraine or Israel funding. So it's it's challenging right now, but we're going to see how this plays out during the week. Uh, now explain, what are the two deadlines in the laddered approach and which programs do they cover? Yeah, so uh, we're seeing the appropriations bills um, kind of split up in those. I think we're going to see the easier ones pass first so that that's, uh, you know, 
the defense um, and agriculture. Um, and obviously there, there's been issues with the transportation and then the um, other bills that have been brought forward to the floor. So uh, we're seeing this breakdown, but clearly the, the bottom line is House Republicans still have to pass a series of appropriations bills that they have not been yet able to do, um, which is the goal here in terms of breaking down those programs. Now, let's say that the speaker does need Democratic votes to pass these bills. Uh, won't that undermine his position in the Republican caucus if he has to rely on Democratic support uh, to get a continuing resolution passed? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's exactly right, Brian. I mean, we, we saw this with uh, what happened with former Speaker Kevin McCarthy, is that he used Democrats to help pass the CR uh, and keep the government open. And of course, that was his last move as Speaker, because the next move was for some of his members to launch a motion to vacate effort against him. Um, with with Johnson, it's going to be different, um, just given the fact that a lot of conservatives said that he, they're going to give him more leeway, given what he had inherited um, as he got the gavel and achieved the speakership. Um, so he's going to be given a lot more leeway, but it's not going to look good. And I can very confidently say that it seems that the honeymoon period for Speaker Johnson is going to be very much over as it already has with people coming against this. So we're going to see what happens here and how he's going to be treated, um, you know, kind of post this, uh, this CR debacle here. Now, you know, it raises the question. Uh, we've played this game of uh, changing speakers and changing speaker designates. Uh, is there anybody who can govern the Republican caucus? Well, I think that was the point that we saw played out in the uh, three week long speakers fight where Republicans were unable to really find anyone until they got Mike Johnson, who was, you know, lesser known and had good relationships, good interpersonal relationships with members. But it's anybody in leadership is going to have a challenging time with the House Freedom Caucus, which is obviously a group that is anti GOP leadership and establishment for the most part. So even if he is one of them. He's, you know, aligned a lot with the group. He's very conservative. It's just the position itself of being Speaker of the House, being in leadership where you actually have to pass funding bills and govern is very antithetical to what the House Freedom Caucus actually stands for, which puts anybody in that position in a very challenging spot in this Congress. Okay, our guest in this half hour is Mika Solna, who uh, covers the Republicans in the House of Representatives for Punchbowl News. Uh, we are going to continue this interview with uh, Mika. Uh, we're going to take a very short break uh, to uh, let out our radio listeners. And I want to uh, remind our radio listeners that they want, if they want to watch us as well as listen to us, they can do that at twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon or facebook.com front slash deadline dc with brad bannon front slash videos we'll be back after this very quick break our guest in this half hour is mika solna congressional reporter for punchbowl news who's graciously taking time out of her busy what i'm sure is a very busy schedule this week uh, with the threat of a government shutdown and all sorts of things going on in the House of Representatives to try to uh, deal with the situation. Uh, Mika, I want to ask you a question. Uh, among the House Republicans you cover, uh, any uh, they learn anything or take 
uh, what were their takeaways from the elections last Tuesday? Uh, uh, they law, uh, Democrats won a governor's race uh, in uh, Kentucky. Uh, they also won a ballot question in Ohio that would enshrine uh, reproductive rights into the state's constitution. Uh, they had a severe setback in Virginia where the Republicans lost both houses of the uh, state legislature. Uh, a lot of people think that had something to do uh, with the governor, Republican governor's proposal, Glenn Youngkin's proposal uh, to enact a fifth uh, week now uh, ban abortions after 15 weeks. I read something this morning, uh, a, a GOP representative uh, from uh, Virginia, Bob Good said that the reason the Republicans failed in Virginia uh, was because uh, Governor Youngkin's 15-month ban wasn't strict enough, and it had been six weeks, or certainly less than 15 weeks, uh, Governor Youngkin would have uh, succeeded in his effort uh, to win both houses of the legislature. Uh, so what do the Republicans take away from Tuesday, especially on abortion? Yeah, um, so I think a lot of Republicans recognize that abortion is a huge winning issue for Democrats right now when it comes to messaging. Um, I spoke with Congressman Warren Davidson of Ohio and asked him what he thought of the results of the Ohio elections. And he said that he was, you know, somewhat surprised by the results, especially in specific counties that did go blue. Um, and he said abortion has been an issue, um, you know, that Republicans haven't been able to figure out in terms of how to combat some of the messaging that's coming from Democrats. But of course, you know, there's been really strict abortion measures that have been uh, passed in states like Florida and Texas. And I think that uh, it's really it makes it really easy for Democrats to kind of message on those and set that as a national example, which hurts uh, uh, GOP members in other states right now. And obviously we saw what happened in the election last year uh, after the overturning of Roe versus Wade. So it's a very sensitive topic, obviously. Um, and I think that this also invigorates not just the Democratic base, but a lot of independent and more moderate voters that are uncomfortable with some of these uh, strict restrictions on abortion um, and access to not just uh, abortion services, but also women's health care in general. Um, I would say. So Republicans should um, have to focus on narrowing that message. And I think that there's also been a lot of uh, female Republican members like Nancy Mace, for example, who has said that they need they need to tone down some of the rhetoric and messaging around that. OK, uh, let's try something else. Uh, uh, the world is at war, at least a good chunk of it is. Um, Ukrainians are battling Russians uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, there is a war going on in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas. Um, both Israel and Ukraine are looking to get um, funding for their military operations from the United States. Uh, where is uh, the, the, this military funding going? Uh, is, that, is there a path to that in the House of Representatives? Yeah, obviously the House did pass an Israel 
aid package uh, previously, but unfortunately, I thought that package is um, you know not going to uh, bode well in the Senate. And the Senate has said that they will not take it up because Republicans have tried to uh, add a bunch of things into that package, like uh, you know whether that's spending cuts or border security. That that is what they're really trying to attach along with um, aid to Israel. Of course, uh, on the Ukraine front, a lot of Republicans have become more skeptical of, of providing aid at all to the Ukraine effort. So that issue is one that, um, you know, has really split the House and the Senate, I would say. So right now, uh, the question of funding for both of those countries are in question. And I think that we're going to see what happens here in the next uh, week or so. Okay. Uh, I was talking to a national security expert, and it's his opinion uh, that Russia is a much bigger threat to American uh, national security uh, than uh, Hamas is, for example, or even Iran. Why the Republicans favor so gung-ho about aid to Israel, uh, but not to Ukraine? Well, I mean, I think that uh, a lot of law, I mean, a lot of lawmakers have obviously you know, been supportive of Israel and and the U.S. has a long history of Israel. So I think that it's just a different kind of relationship um, as opposed to Ukraine, despite them being an ally. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, the the U.S. has given, you know, millions and millions of dollars to Ukraine already. And I think a a lot of Republicans are are telling me that they uh, want to see more of where that money is going in terms of transparency, as well as a plan for how Ukraine can actually win this war. And I will say that, uh, you know, on the Ukraine front, Republicans have also been, um, you know, pointing more to China as a threat um, and making that also as kind of the uh, argument in terms of um, why they are opposed to that. So, um, yeah, I would say that there's a growing resistance and we're seeing that split happen more so among, um, you know, the conference and it's more so the defense hawks that are, uh, you know, supportive of this call. Okay, one last question. Uh, Eventually to get this budget sorted out, what is the what are Democrats going to have to give uh, Republicans in the House to get a full year's budget passed? Do we know what the Republican endgame? I mean, what's what are the Democrats going to have to give up to get this thing settled once and for all? Anything? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it's been clear that Republicans are asking for funding cuts first and foremost uh, is what a lot of the members that whose votes are needed um, are is asking for. So, you know, in terms of that, but obviously Democrats have said that they are really, you know, opposed to the, uh, uh, you know, these this laddered CR and they just most of them just want a clean funding bill like Congresswoman Rosa DeLora, obviously from Connecticut, uh, chairwoman of the appropriate or sorry, ranking member of the Appropriations Committee. So um, yeah, there's already some issues there, but uh, we're going to see what happens here. They'll take a vote up this week, and, and I think we'll we'll see what happens. Okay, uh, Mika, thank you very much for joining us. I know you must be very busy this week, so we'll let you go back uh, uh, to your day job. Uh, we're going to take a break now. Uh, In the second half hour of the show, we're going to uh, change topics and we're going to talk about high tech policy, uh, net neutrality, uh, artificial intelligence and congressional attempts to rein in uh, big tech. 
Our guest will be Adam Connor, who is the Vice President for Technology Policy at the Center for American Progress. We'll be right back with Adam after this break. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. In this half hour, we're going to talk about high-tech issues with Adam Connor, uh, who is Vice President for Technology Policy at the Center for American Progress. Uh, before we get to Adam, though, we're going to play uh, this very brief clip from the chairwoman of the Federal Communications Commission, Jessica Rosenworcel. In the wake of the pandemic, we know that broadband is a necessity and not a luxury. That's why we made a historic commitment to connect all of us to broadband. Now we have work to do to make sure that it's fast, open, and fair. That was uh, the chairwoman of the Federal Communications Commission, Jessica Rosenworcel. Our guest in this half hour is Adam Connor, who is the Vice President of Technology Policy at the Center for American Progress. Uh, welcome to Deadline DC, Adam. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Okay, I'm going to actually, I want to start off with something that um, uh, was in the clip. You know, it seems to me one of the, uh, in my opinion at least, although not an opinion of most Americans, apparently. Uh, Joe Biden has done a lot uh, to move this country forward and deal with the economic challenges that we're going to face in the future. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that he has done, which uh, the chair mentioned, was to extend uh, broad, uh, broad uh broadband access to uh, many parts of the country that didn't have it. Uh, it has uh, the president made a serious contribution uh, to the economic future of this country by expanding broadband access? And, and why is that? You know, uh, Brad, I think absolutely. You know, the president uh, has been a leader on a number of initiatives, including the Affordable Connectivity Program, which helps to subsidize internet for, for low-income families. Uh, he's been a leader in the bipartisan infrastructure bill, uh, which included lots of money for uh, connecting our communities, particularly our rural and, and communities that were uh, you know, more disconnected. And I think as, as the chairwoman said in that clip, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic taught us that internet is an essential um, service right now. You know, it is impossible for us to imagine getting through COVID-19 Without the internet, uh, we we know that people who didn't have access to it really suffered uh, during the pandemic, and that is only something that is going to continue as we get more connected. And so, I think the president's signatures on this, including the affordable connectivity program, including the bipartisan infrastructure bill, and now that the FCC has a uh, fully staffed commission, it means they have five commissioners, which means they can kind of move forward. Uh, there have been an open seat. Uh, for the first two years of his pre two plus years of his presidency, that it really stymied the FCC from doing things. So they've made really historic commitments, uh, but you know there's more work to be done. And I think in particular, I draw your attention to two things. You know, the first is that the funding for the Affordable Connectivity Program, which millions of Americans are using to ensure they have access to the internet. Um, is due to run out. And so it's something that in the um, appropriations bill and the budgets and, and hopefully in some of these continuing resolutions that the money can be found to ensure we don't uh, end up disconnecting you know, those people who have come to depend on that service. And, and the other is certainly 
the work that the FCC is doing um, now that it has, uh, you know, kind of been brought up to speed to to do things like, um, you know, those those grants and, and other pieces to connect us, but also to move forward on something called net neutrality. You know, this is kind of an issue that drives me crazy. And I've talked with other of our guests on this. You know, I have this feeling, you know, first of all, I think a lot of what the president has done has not been appreciated if you look at the polls. Uh, but I have this feeling that maybe a decade from now, people are going to say, you know, Joe Biden had vision. Uh, and God, I, you know, I'm glad he did what he did, even though people apparently don't appreciate it with us. We think people are going to appreciate what he's done on issues like broadband and high tech in general uh, 10 years from now, maybe more than they do now. You know, I, I certainly think that they should, and I, I hope so. You know, I think what's interesting about the work uh, of what the president's done, and some of this we should note was were programs that were put in place uh, in some of the COVID relief bills in the, under the previous president. So there is some kind of bipartisan work that was done here because the internet uh, is essential. But, you know, uh, the work that Joe Biden has done in the in the tech sector for the American people in particular, the, you know, connectivity programs and subsidizations, um, you know, building these new infrastructures, investing in new chips plants and other kind of uh, kind of high tech manufacturing and the chips and science bill. You know, these these are things that people should feel today, but they're also going to feel uh, decades from now. And And my hope is certainly um, that he gets some recognition and his administration gets some recognition for driving really historic investments uh, across the country. You know, if you look at what they prioritize in the infrastructure bill uh, in terms of connectivity, it's about equity and access, right? It's not just about uh, communities that are left behind um, just by geography, but also communities that may be left behind by economics. And I think that's a really essential piece here. Uh, and the other is certainly just thinking about how, um, you know, the president has made a real priority to bring manufacturing for the future, you know, things like chips, microprocessors and other things, back to the United States, as we learned during the COVID-19 pandemic, there's supply chains being uh, primarily located overseas and dependent on the whole world being dependent on them um, really didn't leave us much resiliency. So I think uh, all of this was a strategy to, to not only let us build things at home, but make ourselves kind of more robust for the challenges of the future. Okay, our guest in this half hour is Adam Connor, who is Vice President for Technology Policy at the Center for American Progress. Uh, now, Adam, uh, uh, there are a couple things I, I'd like to talk about. The first thing is net neutrality. Now, my guess is uh, a lot of our people who watch or listen to the show know more about this than I do. Uh, especially to folks who were, you know, watch the show on Facebook and uh, Twitter. Uh, but explain to me uh, and consider me a kindergartner in this uh, regard. What is net neutrality and why is it so important? Sure, and and maybe some history is is helpful here as well. You know, in the uh, kind of later parts of the 2000s and, and in the 2010s, net neutrality was a, a really powerful uh, discussion and organizing force, uh, particularly on communities that were spending time online. And net neutrality is the kind of base concept uh, is that when you use your internet provider right now, um, you know, your hope is that it's a kind of essentially a common carrier, that, that it kind of gives equal access to whatever you may choose to, to, to access on the internet. 
Um, and that is, I think, how Americans think about, for instance, their telephones when they used to have a, a home telephone network or their mobile phones now, right? The um, when I call you, uh, Brad, you know, on the phone, it kind of it's expected to interconnect because that's the system we built, um, and it's not supposed to. You know, it would be strange if it said actually it's going to cost you a dollar more. Um, because you use Verizon and I use AT&T or, or whatever. And that's kind of the backbone uh, of a lot of aspects of this. You know, the concern at the dawn of the internet age and, and as it matured um, through the web 2.0 cycle was that, um, you know, the telecommunications companies and internet companies that provide, you know, tech would think about different ways to prioritize that traffic, sometimes for, for kind of potentially legitimate reasons. And, you know, sometimes um, to maybe enable their, uh, you know, people they've cut deals with or their own services um, to take prioritization over others. And so, you know, this is a long fight that has been going on for a long time. The, the idea has kind of gained salience over the last 15 uh, or so years. And it really came to a head in um, the last administration, sorry, the last term of the Obama administration, um, when uh, then FCC chair Tom Wheeler moved to designate um, you know, internet services, which had always been treated differently by the FCC than telephones, um, as something called Title II, which would allow it to be kind of regulated in a different way and allow net neutrality to be kind of uh, a central tenet of it. Now, I think what's important is that um, that happened, but you know, kind of two things happened with that. One, um, it has been the long-standing subject of, of a lot of litigation. Uh, including essentially being sent back to, to the FCC by the courts. And then the, the change in administration happened as well. And so the uh, Trump FCC moved to reverse it. So as I mentioned earlier, the FCC, which normally has five commissioners, has only had four um, for the last two and a half years um, because Republicans blocked Joe Biden's first nominee for the fifth seat um, to make it a fully functioning commission. And so um, <clears throat> a new candidate was nominated uh, this year, and Anna Gomez has become the fifth commissioner, which allows the commission to move forward on things. Um, so in the past where they would have a 2-2 vote and they tie and not be able to move forward, now they have three votes uh, to move forward. And one of the first orders of business uh, once she was uh, confirmed as a commissioner was to move forward with reestablishing net neutrality. So it's the start of a fairly extensive uh, FCC process that goes through a lot of kind of telecommy uh, uh, procedure, uh, and then obviously we'll, we'll likely be subject to legal thing, uh, agreements. In. But the way you can think about it is this is a promise that Joe Biden and the FCC have been very clear with something they would move on. And in a normal scenario, they would have done that in early 2021. But because Republicans blocked a fifth commissioner, it wasn't something they were able to move on until they got this kind of uh, fully staffed. Okay. So that's why you're seeing movement on it now. Okay. Uh, we're going to take a short break now for our radio listeners. We'll be right back with more of Adam Con Connor, uh, who is Vice President of Technology Policy at the Center for American Progress. Uh, welcome back with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon, and our guest is Adam Connor, Vice President of Technology Policy for the Center for American Progress. Uh, so you were just about to speak uh, to the uh, disadvantages of the surge in artificial intelligence. Could you continue that, Adam? Yeah, absolutely, Brad. You know, as I was saying, the 
uh, rise of chat GPT, release of chat GPT last year, these large language models that are called generative AI, um, they really resonated because unlike other kinds of AI, which were just kind of computers talking to computers behind the scenes, you know, generative AI creates pictures, it creates text, creates videos or audio, the kind of things that any human being can just understand, they can see, they can read. I think that really sparked people's understanding that this is something that could be a really powerful tool, but also really cause some disruptions and potentially some harms. And so I think that has really been one of the kind of catalysts for the large amount of interest we've seen uh, in discussing AI. And I think what people need to, to believe or understand is that the people building this technology and a lot of regulators and others believe that it is only going to keep advancing. It might not advance overnight to the to the kind of point where, for instance, it can simulate or even exceed human thinking. We're not there yet. But that possibility is on the horizon. And so, you know, kind of two things happen. One, what does it mean when we kind of get true artificial intelligence or even, you know, steps beyond what we have today? What will that do to our jobs, to our livelihoods, to our uh, sense of truth? And the other is, so, so how do we prepare for that future? But how do we also prepare for, for the reality of today? You know, I mentioned these systems have been built for a while. They're already starting to be used in things like healthcare and, and finance and, 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 and you know, kind of home sales. And, and there's a real danger there um, that those tools could be used in a way that causes harm. Maybe it enhances discrimination or it, you know, kind of uh, reaffirms redlining or other issues. So, uh, you know, everybody who's paying attention to artificial intelligence should be paying attention to it in three ways, right? How is it going to affect me? What is it going to do in causing harms today? And how do we need to plan for the future? And a lot of the conversation you're seeing now is really around those three things. Are there, well, let's talk about the, the President Biden uh, uh, released an executive order on artificial intelligence a week or two ago. Uh, what, uh, what did the executive order do? Absolutely. Well, the, the White House, the president, and the, the vice president, I've really been thinking about artificial intelligence even before the kind of catalyst release of ChatGPT got everyone's attention. So, you know, at the beginning of the administration and through 2021 and 2022, uh, they worked on something called the White House Blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights, which really said, here are some fundamental things that AI needs to, to have as a regulation or a principle in order for it to be kind of safe and fair and effective for the American people to use it or, or anyone in the world, right? This isn't a technology that is going to be restricted uh, just to Americans. And so the next progression of that, as they worked on it, was to use the president's executive authority to issue an executive order uh, around artificial intelligence. Now, executive authority is not uh, universal. It can only have certain things uh, within the law. And the main thing it can do is it can instruct the federal government to both uh, undertake certain tasks related to AI, and also to uh, put guardrails around the government's use of AI. And I think in particular, when governments that uh, have tremendous amount of power use these automated systems, there's kind of extra potential for harm. And so the executive order that was released uh, a week and a half ago, I want to say, um, maybe two, sorry, two weeks ago, uh, really focused on one, outlining core principles like civil rights and consumer protection and workplace protections from artificial intelligence the president um, oriented the government to focus on, and then went through 100 plus pages of taskings for more than a dozen agencies to prepare for AI. I think that sounds like a lot, and it is pretty wide, but the reason is 
we expect artificial intelligence to be something that touches on every sector of the economy and the government, from national security to jobs to workplaces to finance. And so it, it is also why that executive order needed to have a fairly broad way, range. Okay. Uh, now, uh, just recently, uh, uh, we uh, a, a strike between the actors uh, and the studios was settled, and AI, they're in a new agreement, there are some limitations on how the studios can use artificial intelligence to reproduce the image of uh, already existing uh, material. Uh, is it in danger of replacing uh, a lot of American jobs? I think that's probably a concern that, uh, that some Americans have. I think it's a it's a real concern. You know, the the actors and the writers were the real kind of vanguard of what we should expect in these battles to understand what it means to be humans with jobs in the age of artificial intelligence. And so one of the things about LLMs and the future of, of, of artificial intelligence is the kind of uh, tasks and the kind of things that it, it, it can excel at replacing aren't kind of what we've expected automation to take jobs from in the past. They're, these aren't factory warm workers or farmers or other aspects where kind of tooling and mass production can really play that. You know, this is a place where knowledge tasks that come out in, you know, Excel spreadsheets or, you know, words written in emails really kind of can have a, a huge replacement effect. And so, you know, I think the question on everyone's mind is, is where are these job disruptions going to happen? And I think it's really important for audiences to know that is likely to include white collar jobs and kind of professional jobs as much as it is, um, you know, kind of any other sector we've seen in the past. And so the the writers and the, the actors in particular were the kind of first wave of this, right? If you uh, have a studio that can take your likeness and just use it however they want using AI, they don't need the actor anymore, right? So it's core to the actor's livelihood in the same way if they can just take the past scripts and generate new ones, they don't need writers. And that I think might be good for their bottom lines. And we've seen certainly that's been the, the studio's primary concern, but it's not, it takes away from the human element. And we know that's what keeps people coming back. You know, the, we've seen this in movies, for instance, right? The recycling of the same themes in superhero movies starts to drop in terms of attendance because people, they want original ideas. And that's something that is increasingly difficult to imagine in a, in a particularly uh, studio profit-driven world where they have it. So the, the actors and the writers winning those protections is, I think, really critical for their own industries, but to teach us all how we're going to have to think about uh, addressing AI and how we think about people having jobs in the future. Okay. Uh, let me ask you uh, a question in general. Uh, I think there's a lot of concern well, this is the way my grandmother would have put it. Is high tech getting too big for its bridges? I think the answer is yes. You know, I, I have a saying, you know, I grew up in the tech sector. I worked at tech companies for a long time. And tech had a moment, you know, for the last 10 or 15 years where it was very popular. It had a lot of money. It had a lot of power. And it wasn't regulated very much. And those aren't four things you get to have for forever. And I think as its popularity has decreased and its power and money has increased, people are starting to understand that regulation, having some boundaries and guardrails on these companies is important to channel, not just for our protection, but to make sure the kind of innovations that are happening aren't ones that are just damaging to us, right? It's not about uh, you know 
secretly cramming a fifth ad into something and deceiving us into clicking it, right? Like innovation shouldn't be just about that. It should be about these other pieces. And I think that's where we've lost a little bit of the script and our, our hope at CAP and among my allies and colleagues, right, is that um, we're able to take a little bit of this power back to make sure we can direct the future of innovation and tech into something that, you know, is positive for all of us. Is that does that mean more government regulation of the high tech industry? I think it means some government regulation. You know, it's a relatively unregulated uh, industry. I think that often surprises people. I think people think that there's a lot more rules for these things than there actually are. And so, you know, I think that that is uh, something we've called for at CAP. You know, uh, understanding how to make technology work for the people uh, and to be democratically responsive is like a really critical piece to making sure that it is a part of our healthy society moving forward. And, you know, industries that don't have a lot of regulation, uh, you know, I'm not saying we need endless amounts, but I think people will be shocked to learn how little there is. Okay. One last thing I want to ask you about, unfortunately, we only have about 30 or 45 seconds to talk about this. What about the, uh, uh, lawsuit that several state attorney generals had brought against uh, high tech uh, for, you know, I- images and content that might hurt children. You know, I, I'm glad to see that lawsuit. My former colleague at Facebook, Arturo Bahar, testified in front of Congress uh, this week as well to talk a little bit about what he'd seen and why he was kind of driven to sp- speak out. And, you know, we don't understand a lot of the consequences of these technologies um, that that are happening, but we really don't understand how they impact children and, and teenagers. And, you know, teenagers come onto these platforms and are real targets in ways uh, that both we need to be worried about what they know and they're hiding, but also more importantly, how we can commit ourselves to, to trying to figure out how to make these platforms safe for them okay. as well. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to interrupt you there, Adam, and maybe you can come back at some point and talk about more about that. Uh, that's it for Deadline DC. Uh, we'll see you next week if the uh, Lord is willing and the creek don't rise. <laughs>